1: Well, this morning we are continuing a study that we've been in for some time now in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. This was an early Christian community uh, that was, as every Christian community has, uh, trying to figure out how they live out their faith in a world and in a culture where they often got mixed messages about what it means to live a full and fruitful human life. They lived within a culture that told them uh, that the one with the most wealth, the one with the most gifts, the one with the most knowledge, uh, was the one who had won in their cultural and social life. And into that world, Paul has been writing and saying, no, no, for a Christian, your life is meant not to be shaped like a ladder for you to climb, but to be shaped like the cross where Jesus died, where he showed us what genuine and true love and life looks like. As he gave his life for us. And so we've called this series, The Cross-Shaped Life. And now as we come, this is our second week in 1 Corinthians 15. We see that the other side of the cross, the cross is always preached. In light of the other side of the coin, which is Jesus' resurrection. Right? We don't have to scramble for success and wealth and prestige in this life. Because we know that ultimately there is hope in the resurrection of Christ beyond this life. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is really one of the fullest and deepest uh, teachings on the resurrection that we have anywhere in the Bible or uh, subsequent Christian history. And so we are going to look today at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. And so if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word?
0: Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have no hope in this life, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, All things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their own behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my priding you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love.
1: Thanks. You can be seated. On October 3rd of 1951, uh, the New York Giants played the Brooklyn Dodgers back when those, were, those two teams have since moved. Um, but there used to be a team called the Giants in New York, and the Dodgers were in Brooklyn, and they played the first ever nationally televised baseball game. It was game three of a three-game playoff to determine who would win the National League. This game was not only the first game ever broadcast on national television, but through armed service radio... Uh, our soldiers heard it all over the world. We were in the middle of the Korean conflict at the time, and so there were thousands more listening in Korea to this first ever uh, nationally televised baseball game. Well, with the Giants trailing 4-2 in the ninth, Bobby Thompson came up to bat and hit a three-run homer over the left field fence in what became known as the shot heard round the world. Uh, It was a very famous uh, moment in baseball history. New York Herald reporter Red Smith, in his article the next morning, wrote what may be the greatest opening line in all sports writing. This is what he wrote. He said, well, now it is done. Now the story ends, and there is no way to tell it. The art of fiction is dead. Reality has strangled invention. Only the utterly impossible... The inexpressibly fantastic can ever be plausible again. It's beautiful. That is poetry. And I'm a a pretty big sports fan. Uh, But even I would admit that might be a bit much um, to describe a baseball game uh, with such mythic and global terms. But it is appropriate language when we consider what in the Christian story is marked as the most significant event. In the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus means that truly reality has become stranger than fiction, right? And that if Jesus is raised from the dead, then as Smith said, only the utterly impossible, the inexpressibly fantastic can ever be plausible again. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then everything, everything we know about the world has changed with it. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he starts in verse 12 here by saying, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Evidently, this was something that was hard to believe for the Corinthian Christians, as it has been for most people in human history. Because uh, we believe what was happening in Corinth was that they were leaning on what they had learned from Greek philosophy, In trying to make the Christian message, which Paul has summarized as the death of Jesus in accordance with the scriptures and his resurrection on the third day, they had tried to take that message and make it fit with what all of the most intelligent people in their world believed, what the philosophers of their world believed. And that was simply that there is no resurrection from the dead. That when you die, you're dead and that's the end of it. You see, Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers knew what all people know, which is that all people die, and they viewed this not as an evil, not as a, um, something to, to be undone, but as a necessary part of human life, that to live life in the body was eventually to die and that this death was to be welcomed because death meant that our souls were no longer imprisoned by our physical bodies. That once you died, your soul could become free, you could go live a life apart from a body with its temptations, with its illnesses, with its breakdowns. And so the the goal was to get free of a body. And so why would you go teaching that dead bodies can be raised again? And so there were those uh, within the Jewish faith who had started to to not believe in the resurrection In, in in the Gospels. Those are called the Sadducees. They didn't believe that there was a physical resurrection. And now here in Corinth, Paul's run into Christians who are saying there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. You know, this is—it uh, was hard for them to believe. It's hard for us to believe as well. A recent survey showed that only about 36% of professing Christians in America believe in a bodily resurrection, believe that uh, our eternal future isn't to be an angel floating in a cloud with a harp, but is to actually be raised from the dead with new remade bodies on a new earth, uh, as the New Testament teaches. And so it was hard for them to believe. It's hard for us to believe. Because we do what they did. We take what we know of the world, and then we judge the Christian message by it. And so what they knew was, if we know there's no resurrection from the dead, then that means that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead, and it means that we won't be raised from the dead. And Paul's writing in this chapter is to undo that for them. And to say, no, 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 you don't evaluate Jesus by what you know of the world. The resurrection causes you to reevaluate what you think you know about the world. Yeah. right? The resurrection isn't just something you try to pigeonhole into your categories. It's what gives you new eyes, new categories through which to see the world around you. Because his argument is going to be that, no, no, Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, that means resurrection can happen because it happened to one man. And therefore, we can trust that it will happen one day for all men and women. And so we, as badly as these first, first century Corinthians, need to learn again how the resurrection changes absolutely everything about the way we view our lives, the way we view our bodies, the way we view our hope and our world. We need to learn to see with new resurrection eyes how the world really works because of what happened on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead. And so uh, let's look at it here. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, uh, Paul says that we can know the following things. First, we know that if Jesus is risen from the dead, we can have trust and faith in our future resurrection from the dead. He uses this language here. Uh, over and over in his writings, uh, Paul's logic is that to be in Christ, to trust in Christ, to believe in him, is to be joined to him. It's to be joined to him in his death and in his resurrection. Right? That if Christ is the risen one, that to be joined to Christ by faith is to be in him and is to be someone who will rise from sin and death and guilt. Yes. Amen. Amen. Over and over, this is what the Scriptures press us to believe. He calls here, uh, he tells us uh, some of what, uh, what would be the case if Christ wasn't really risen from the dead in verses 12 through 19. He gives all of these clauses about if Christ isn't risen, then. If he's not, then this is what it means for us. He continues to say that it's in vain. Your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. This means that it's empty. He goes so far as to say that if Christ is not risen, then we of all the people of the world are the most to be pitied. We're the most to be looked down on, that our faith and our hope isn't just for this life. He says, if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What Paul wants us to see here is that the forgiveness of sins, our justification before God, isn't just the result of the cross, but it it requires the cross and the resurrection. Right, That it's not just that Jesus died to take the penalty for our sins, which is a, a wonderful and blessed truth that Paul elsewhere goes at length to explain. But here he says, if Christ only died on the cross and wasn't risen on the third day, then you would still be stuck in the guilt, shame, and bondage of sin. Because, because, and it's not just, you know, sometimes I've heard the resurrection talked about uh, to simply mean this, that because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that the Father accepted His sacrifice, right? Because He rose from the dead, that it means He really was the Son of God, and, Jesus, and uh, the Father accepts the sacrifice of the cross, therefore we're forgiven. But it means so much more than that, because the gospel to Paul always means not just what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. Right? The cross gives us in vivid detail what we're saved from. We are saved from the guilt and penalty that our own sins deserve. Right? We're saved from the punishment and justice of God. Jesus took all of that on himself on the cross. The full weight of God's justice against human sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. So we see there what we're saved from. But the resurrection shows us what we're saved for, right? Our problem with sin is not just that we're guilty, it's not just that we're condemned before a, a, a righteous God, it's also the full amount of brokenness and pain and corruption of life in this world, right? It's not just the guilt of our sin, but it's the addictive power of our sin, the, the, part, the, um, the way that it affects our hearts so that we want to do and we can't do what we want to do. Right, It's also the breakdown of our bodies, the breakdown of our families, the breakdown of our world and our society and our relationships. And the gospel isn't just salvation from, it's also salvation for. The way that Paul talks about this is he seizes on one central metaphor here. Verse 21. For as by a man death came, Uh, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what Paul is doing here. He's taking the story of the Bible, the long story of God's dealings with humanity, and he says there's essentially two figures that ultimately matter in, in all of human history. There's Adam, the first man, And there's Christ. That these two men represent uh, as figureheads all the rest of humanity. Right? We know the story of Adam and Eve. Created for communion with God. Created to worship God. Created to rule as kings and queens over God's creation. Instead, they turned their back on God. They ate the apple, seeking after a knowledge that transcended their dependence on God as his creatures. And they plunge the rest of us with them into sin, into corruption, and into death. This means that every human being who's ever been born is born looking like our first parents. Right? Have you ever seen a baby and you go, man, there is no doubt who that child belongs to. You look like your dad, you act like your dad, you walk like your mom, you talk like your mom. Well, the scriptures tell us that every single one of us bears an an undeniable family resemblance to Adam and Eve, right? Our pride, our rebellion, our belief that we know better than God knows, our desire to find life apart from God on our own terms, that we are born, as Paul says here, into Adam, that we are born into Adam. And then comes Christ. And he tells us that by faith in Christ, we can undo, or Christ has undone the curse of Adam's sin. Right, So that by trusting in Christ, we can get all that Adam and Eve were originally created for. Communion with God, a world without sin, a world lived in faithful obedience to God. And that every human being now is either in Adam or in Christ. Right, You don't choose to be born into Adam. That just happens. Right? That's the, the classic Christian doctrine of original sin, right? that every one of us is born into sin. But by faith, this is where a lot of the language that Jesus uses in John 3 about being born again means that we are born into a new life, not marked by sin and death and corruption, but marked by life, grace, Marked by new obedience and the Spirit of God giving us a new heart, that we are brought into new life in Christ. Now, this is, this brings unthinkable changes into our world, right? Because what Paul is saying here, if there's a new Adam, then there's a new creation, right? That Christ isn't just resurrected for his own sake. Hey, isn't that wonderful? But no, Christ brings a new creation in his wake. He brings the opportunity for men and women, boys and girls, by faith to have a share in his resurrection, to know that we too will have new life. This is the way that he puts it. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. This is an agricultural term uh, that we have very little, most of us, uh, unless you have a garden or a farm or something like that, that most of us have little category for. But the first fruits were the first sign of a harvest to come. So if you were a farmer and you'd spent the entire uh, previous part of your year planting and tilling and watering, making sure that your crops got all that they needed to thrive, well, when that first head of wheat came to fruition, you were ecstatic. Not because it meant that you had one head of wheat, because one, one little piece of wheat wasn't going to feed your family or your community for very long, but because it was a sign that more was to come. Right? We have in our neighborhood, there is a lovely uh, little older woman who has a grapefruit tree. All year, I look forward to when we can go and take grapefruit off of Mama Tweet's grapefruit tree. Um, and now we're not stealing her grapefruit, she tells us that we, that we can have them, um, but we will look all year and they start out and they're kind of green and yellow and they start to turn into a mature and ripe grapefruit. And we keep waiting for them to get ripe enough and when that first one gets ripe enough to take, we get it and we take it home and then you cut into the grapefruit. And there's this moment of truth about, is this going to be a good grapefruit or an awful, mealy, sour grapefruit? Has it you know If we had too many freezes and it's going to be nasty, or, is it, or has it been just right? You cut into it and you can tell from the quality of that one grapefruit what the rest of the grapefruit are going to be like. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, he's, he's seizing on this metaphor to say that because one man rose from the dead... In the middle of human history, in the middle where everyone else is just dying, right? Every other human being at, at a virtually 1,000% success rate is dying, right? Even the people who are rising from the dead around Jesus, right? Lazarus and the dead girl that he, he, he uh, goes to in the room, right? Even all of those people, they rose from the dead, they walked around for a while, then they died again, right? We don't know if they lived another five years, 20 years, 30 years, but they were, those are better thought of as resuscitations than resurrections, Right, they, they lived for a while, then died, but here's Jesus rises from the dead, never to die again, to live a new kind of life and a new kind of body, and then to ascend to the Father. And of that, Paul says, that is first fruits. That's not a one-off, that is the, that is the first one of what's going to be a global outbreak of resurrection, right? Jesus is patient zero in a resurrection outbreak, uh, that all who join him by faith will be a part of. Yeah, yeah. He is the firstfruits of the new creation that we share in by faith in him. And I love the way that he uses this language. He says, in Adam all die, but so in Christ shall all be made alive. He says these are the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here's what he says. He says to be in Adam, to be a human being like every human being born in Adam, is to die. right? It's to perish. It's to live and then to die and then to go away. But in Christ, by faith, it is only to fall asleep. Right? He says that he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That the gospel transforms death into sleep. Right, uh, one commentator says that when when Paul says fallen asleep here, this is a parable in miniature, right? When he says of those who've died in Christ that they've just fallen asleep, it's meant to evoke what a metaphor that, yeah, yeah, those who die in Christ are just like those who fall asleep. And what happens to people who fall asleep at night? They wake up to a new day. They wake up at a new dawn to a new day and a new life, right? To be one who sleeps is to be one who will wake up. Wolfhart Pannenberg, a great German theologian, put it this way. I know I have it written down here. He said it, yeah. So he said the same thing I said. He just has a. He just has a German name, so you'd think, you know, that he's more, more intelligent maybe. Um, but take my word for it, somewhere he said it, that to fall asleep is to rise again. The way German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg put it is this, the familiar experience of being awakened and rising from sleep for complete and un- is subbed for the complete and unknown destiny of the dead. So you see, friends, this is the good news of the gospel, is that we have nothing to fear in death. In Christ and not in Adam, death is transformed into a sleep from which we can know with some certainty that we will rise. We think that's what's going on in the strange words here in verse 29. You you may have noticed that when it was read. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? That is, a, that is a strange thing to read. We don't, in this church, baptize people for the dead. Um, and we don't think that, uh, I think this is one that scholars have gone over and over uh, about, about what it means. Were people really being baptized and the thought that if you baptize one person, that somebody who is dead would get credit and be viewed as baptized? I don't think so. That doesn't fit with what Paul says about baptism anywhere else uh, in the New Testament. I think the best way to read this is that Greek word that in your translation is on behalf of the dead can mean just generally because of the dead, those who are baptized because of the dead. And we think what Paul means here, it fits with what he says elsewhere in the chapter, is that some had seen how people were dying in Christ. They saw how people were empowered to face death in Christ without fear, as though they were simply falling asleep. They saw the faith of the martyrs who suffered persecution and death. And inspired by their faith, they were converted and believed and were baptized. And so what he's doing is painting this picture that the way that people die in Christ is a witness to the power of Christ to others because of Christ's uh, transformation of death. So it means our future resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus also means the final victory of God over evil. You know, in the New Test- or in the entire Old Testament is a looking forward to God finally dealing with evil once and for all. Right, It's not just looking forward to the forgiveness of individual sins, but God finally judging evil and getting rid of it in his world, being victorious over all that locks this world in sin and violence. One of the great Old Testament prophecies of this is found in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter in Acts 2 uh, tells us that this is David looking ahead to Christ as being the one who would ultimately subdue evil, rule over the world, subjecting all the forces of evil under his feet. And it's those verses that Paul picks up on here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that he must rule until he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And so what Paul is doing here, he's painting a picture that in Jesus' resurrection, he has defeated the forces of evil, the forces of Satan, the forces of sin and sickness and death, that he already rules over all of them. But in this life, in this world that we live in, it doesn't yet seem like he's subjected all things underneath him, does it? We still suffer, we still see human injustice and evil, we still see poverty, we still see um, our own suffering and our own bodies and souls. It doesn't yet look like all things are subjected to Christ. But what Paul says is that Christ is ruling, and he's actively working now to bring all of his enemies under his feet. We live in a world where Jesus resurrected already stands victorious over death. But he's working to enforce that victory through his church in this world. That he's working to overcome the effects of sin and injustice and violence sickness, and despair through his ongoing work by his spirit in his church. He talks here about Christ being victorious over the rulers and the authorities and the powers. Right, think about what the, first Corinthians, what the Corinthians lived through. They lived in the shadow of these authorities and powers. Right, they lived in the shadow of temples to Caesar where if they didn't make their offering to Caesar, uh, they, they risked death. They lived in the shadow of a pagan empire uh, that threatened their very lives. And Paul says that Christ has already defeated those powers. The ones who seem to hold all the cards, the one who seems to have all the chips, Christ has already defeated them by his death and resurrection. And now we're just waiting to see their final overthrow and what that will look like. We live in a world that's haunted by defeated enemies of Christ, but whose fate is already secured because of his victory. Alistair McGrath, put it this way, tells a great story. He says, I remember once meeting a man who had been held prisoner in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Singapore. He told me of the astonishing change in the camp atmosphere, which came about when one of the campers who owned a shortwave radio learned of the collapse of the Japanese war effort in the middle of 1945. Although all in the camp still remained prisoners, they knew that their enemy had been beaten. If they would only it would only be a matter of time before they were released. And those prisoners, I was told, began to laugh and cry as if they were free already. So he uses this picture of, of men in a prisoner of war camp learning that their captors had already been defeated, and they were as good as free, even though. Today, they still had to live within this, this structure. And friends, he uses that to show us that that is a picture of our state in Christ. That Christians are those who, who are freed from the powers of sin and guilt and death. Who know the ultimate victory of Christ over evil. And who, be, who can begin to laugh and, and to cry as free men and women. Knowing that the powers that seem to hold sway over our lives in this world will not win. We will not be defined by our sin. The last world in, this world in this world will not be violence and warfare and injustice and oppression. right? But that Christ will win and his enemies are as good as defeated. And we get to participate in his bringing his enemies under his feet as he rules the world. And then finally, the resurrection of Jesus means that your life has a lasting and an enduring significance beyond the pleasures or pains of this world. You know, all throughout uh, this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been urging them towards the model of Jesus for what it means to love, for what it means to live a human life, right? We, We said that at the beginning, that it means not climbing the ladder of success and prosperity and knowledge and applause, but going down the other way of humility and service and generosity and sacrifice. Paul now gets around to showing how that makes sense. Because honestly, investing your life in that way is immoral. It's it's foolish if this life is all there is. To tell people to sacrifice and to give, even to the point of death, for the sake of love, is a stupid thing to ask somebody if they're about to die, and then this world is all there is. He goes on to quote one of the Greek playwrights to say, if that's the case, then eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. But if, on the other hand, there is life beyond this life, then no act of love is done in vain. No matter how small, no matter how hidden, no matter how unthanked or unappreciated in this world, all of our callings have eternal significance because of the resurrection of the dead. He goes on to narrate some of his story, right? He says, I I die every day. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. What does all of this mean if the dead are not raised? Right? If the dead are not raised, Paul lived just a foolish life. Going around this world, suffering hardship, planting churches, sharing the gospel. What a foolish way to live your life if this world is all that there is. No, but he pulls back the curtain to show us that if the dead are raised, then nothing in this life is done in vain. N.T. Wright is an English uh, theologian, one of the great uh, best thinkers on the resurrection uh, that we have today. And I'll read a quote from his uh, great little book, Surprised by Hope. Listen to these words. "'What you do in the Lord is not in vain.'" You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness. Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings. And for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel and builds up the church embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrection power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. I love that. You are not planting roses in a garden that's only going to be dug up and thrown away. But you are planting roses in a garden that's going to endure forever. You know, some of you know and have been kind um, to reach out to me and my family. My, my grandfather passed away on Monday of this week. And uh, my grandfather was was an artist. He was a painter. He was a graphic designer in his uh, in his career, and then in his retirement, was a watercolor uh, artist. And in hospice care, uh, my grandfather who hadn't really been able to paint meaningfully in several years. Said, you know, he was getting frustrated, wanted to get out of the hospital. Uh, And just said, "I gotta get home. I gotta get back to my painting. I gotta. I've gotta paint some more." And so, of course, you say as you do in those moments, "Oh, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes." We all knew that this was nearing the end for him, but he wanted to do what he loved. He wanted to take up the brush and to paint again. The other day. my family and I went to his apartment, we're going through his things, and it was, you know, that's, he, he lived and died in Christ, largely his passing was as sweet uh, as one could hope. But going back into his things and into his stuff was a heart-wrenching uh, time. And as we began to go through his stuff, we started to go through his paintings. Some of them finished down to the last detail, uh, some of them abandoned halfway through because something didn't quite go the way he wanted in the sunshine or in the, in the water, Uh, Some of them very near to completion. You could tell he had put aside right before he kind of was no longer able to, to keep painting. And friends, the resurrection means the resurrection means that my granddad will take up his brushes again. It means that no half finished piece of art remains half finished forever, but that Jesus will bring our work in this world to completion. Right, friends, all that this life ever is for us is half finished paintings. Right, One day I'll die with what I feel like is a half-planted church. Right, All of us will, will head to our death feeling like we've got half-raised kids, Right, that we didn't say or do half the things for them and with them we wanted to do. We'll have half-explored marriages where we only began to scratch the surface of another person's mystery. We'll end up with half-completed work, half-finished projects. This city will be a, will be a half-fixed, half-redeemed city. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus will finish his redemption of this world. That he will make everything that's halfway done, halfway beautiful, halfway thrown away. He will make it all the way fixed, all the way redeemed, all the way beautiful again. And we know this because of the resurrection of Jesus. That because he's raised, we in him and all things will be raised to new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know um, how middling our life in this world feels. How our best intentions often get undermined by our worst impulses. How our best ideas get cut short by our own laziness. Lord, how even our most full-hearted attempts to follow you were distracted by our own sin, our own appetites, our own desires. Lord Jesus, help us to live life in this world in the hope of resurrection life. Lord, help us to live as though we are people who believe that this world isn't all that there is, who believe that sin and suffering and death and corruption don't have the last word, but that new life and new creation is dawning and has dawned through Jesus. Lord, help us to live life in this world, in light of the world that you are making through your Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.